1: Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy, and we will be joined here in a minute by Mississippi State outfielder Tanner Allen. Before we get to all of that, I've gotta let you know that the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, here we are in uh, in December now, and we are we're still talking college baseball here on the Baseball America College podcast sticking with you throughout the the off season, and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast we greatly appreciate everyone who does so be that on apple podcast stitcher spotify wherever you get your podcasts you can find the baseball america podcast and joe it's uh uh it, the season is creeping ever closer although i it, it feels less like that as as we dip deeper and deeper uh into the colder weather and the winter months
0: yeah winter showed up weird thing happened out here i was i was <laughs> gone for a few days, went on a, a, a quick trip out of town, did so safely trying to, trying to be safe, keep everybody safe out there, but it came back after a period of time and, and winter happened. The trees are a little more bare and it's a little grayer, at least it is today, I suppose, but it's kind of funny. It almost looks like a different, haven't been gone long, but it's one of those things where you come back home and it feels a little bit weird because it just looks so different from when you, when you left it. More importantly, in that period of time that I was gone, someone stole my trash can. Trash cans just gone, like (laughs) put it out. So here was my dilemma. Trash gets picked up on a, on a, you know, specific day during the week. I was leaving a couple of days before that. I was like, you know, I I don't want to leave a couple of bags of trash just sitting in this trash can while I'm gone. Like anywhere else in wooded neighborhoods, you get, you get critters and you know, I do a good job of trying to secure my trash cans, but those guys are crafty. I don't want to tempt fate and come back to trash all over, you know, the yard or, or what have you. So I go ahead and put it out thinking, you know, the HOA might gripe at me a little bit for having my trash cans out a little too long, but I'll tell my neighbors and I'll tell, you know, people around so they can maybe help me a little bit. If, if something comes up, they can pull my trash can in. Well, I come back, trash can's just gone. I talk to the neighbors. Nope. Haven't seen it. I walk around the property a little bit trying to see, okay, does somebody have Now, the problem is all the trash cans look the same. There's really not a lot of distinguishing features about them, but I kind of walked around to see, does anybody have two trash cans here, or is there like a spare one kind of sitting in a weird, weird place? And nope, I I think the trash can's just gone. So I guess um, I'm going to just start shooting my trash into space or something, because I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do now. um, Thankfully, the city of Durham, I guess I say I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do now, but the city of Durham has been... Uh, pretty easy to work with on this. They're going to just deliver a new trash can, which is has been kind of nice. But in the time being, I don't know when that's going to get delivered. But for the time being, we're going to have to find alternate solutions for our trash, which I suppose is just going to mean Joe pushes the trash on top of the trash can down a little bit harder every time he puts something in there because that's about all I got.
1: That <laughs> it is.
0: It's just gone. It's just I don't it's, know. It's not what you expect. That was my biggest fear. So like when people leave town, you you get nervous about the obvious things, right? Did I lock my car? you know, you know people, you know, sometimes you know if you leave your car unlocked, like sometimes you'll have people rifle through things and it's just kind of a thing that happens in life. It's unfortunate. but you know, did I lock my car? Did I lock the house? like, will people know that we're gone? so they they come to the house and take advantage of the fact that we're gone and, and find their way in. Um, things like that. those are things you kind of worry about. I you know I had a passing my, my biggest concern was, you know our people in the neighborhood because you know I do live in an area where you know we do have an HOA that is a little bit of a stickler about things like pulling your trash cans in on time. I was a little bit worried about how that might go over, but I, I never in a million years actually thought that my trash can would just go missing. But look, you know I pulled in and it was like the first thing I noticed, like where's the trash can? Where is our trash can? And now I'll never know. I'll get a new I'll, I'll get a fresh new one which is nice cuz the the one I had was a little bit older so I'm maybe trading in for a new model unless the city of durham gives me a a pre-owned trash can which i suppose is on the table but just gone trash can just gone so count your blessings folks you know if you're able to bring your trash can in and out of your house every day you're doing pretty well in my book
1: you know you never know what's going to happen this year and uh i guess that is uh that includes your trash cans
0: yeah yeah 2020 strikes again joe's trash can got stolen
1: well, as Joe uh, contemplates that mystery, we uh, we've got plenty to discuss here on the podcast today. We, as I mentioned, have an interview coming with Mississippi State outfielder Tanner Allen. Going to talk a little bit about the dogs, a little bit about him now returning for uh, a- another season in Starkville after the draft didn't work out with the the shortened five round draft. Uh, he's now back uh, as an integral piece of the Bulldogs offense Uh, could be a pretty fun season in Starkville as usual. Um, Expectations are high, talent is high. We'll see where things go for them this spring. Uh, So we're gonna get into that with him. We also this week in our weekly top 25, we ranked the top 25 rivalries in college baseball. Um, Sure to be a hot topic uh, as we dissect uh, how we we broke down the, the top of that list uh and we uh we'll probably get into some summer ball news here uh i wrote over at baseballamerica.com kind of a state of where summer ball is after uh the 2020 season was you know as as uh, strange as as anyone can imagine really a totally unprecedented season with a lot of leagues canceling team say canceling where do they stand now as they look to 2021 and what happens now that MLB has created two new leagues that go into this space? There have been a lot of questions about that. I try to answer them um, so we, we can get into that a little bit here as well. Uh, but, Joe, let's not let's not make the folks wait any longer than they need to. I know everyone's excited to hear from Tanner Allen. I'm sure we have a lot of Mississippi State fans tuning in for this. So let's get let's get to that quickly here, Tanner Allen. Coming off of, uh, you know, a, it, it was a strong start to the spring for, for both Tanner and, and Mississippi State, uh, of course, before the season's cancellation. Uh, and, and now, you know, like I mentioned, could be a, a pretty intriguing year for, for the Bulldogs in 2021. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're excited to be joined by Mississippi State slugger Tanner Allen. Tanner, I guess I maybe should introduce you as outfielder, uh, though I know you've played some first base as well. But, you know, just to uh, just to to, we're excited to have you join us here and and get into some some talk about the Bulldogs and the 2021 season.
2: Yes, sir, ma'am. I'm I'm uh, I'm happy to be here, guys.
1: Awesome. Well, for a moment here, I I know I said we talked 2021, but let's let's rewind it a little bit back to the spring uh, can you take us through just some of the the roller coaster ride that those months must have been, going from opening day and you know the excitement of starting the season to you know, it getting canceled, and then all the uncertainty, and then ultimately finding out that you know you could have an extra year of eligibility, and that the draft was was getting shortened, and and then you deciding ultimately to come back to Starkville.
2: You know, when, when the season first started, we were all excited because we had a very, very good team last year. And uh, we were actually, you know, like every year, our goal was to win a national championship, and I feel like we had a really good a good enough team to do it last year. And uh, we, we started off hot. Um, we swept at home, opened a weekend, then, then started to get beat up a little bit. But right before the season ended, we uh, swept Texas Tech in, um, in Biloxi. And uh, that next weekend, we were actually supposed to open an SEC play with Arkansas at home. And then uh COVID hit. And it was funny, man. It was like one day or the day it hit, it was like 30 minutes to go by and it was like uh we're not gonna have any fans of duty noble this weekend. We were bummed about that. And an hour went by and then there all of a sudden there's no college world series and another hour went by and, and the season's canceled. And the next thing you know, I'm in mobile two days later. <laughs> so it was it was a wild it was a wild year. I uh, I'm glad we got an extra year of eligibility because uh I love Mississippi State, man, and uh, I was excited to be able to come back. Obviously, the draft didn't work out the way I wanted it to, but that's life. So uh, all I'm doing now is, is getting ready for another big year at Mississippi State and have the same goal in mind, and that is to get to Omaha and win the whole thing.
0: Take us through a little bit of, of what your spring and summer was like. I mean, what were you able to do? What did you use to fill your time, not just from a baseball standpoint, although I'm curious about that too, but but just in general. I have to imagine it's probably a little more stationary than you were used to being that time of year. Well, of course, man. Back home,
2: I actually live uh, in South Alabama, so I'm real close to the beach and, and the water, and my, one of my favorite hobbies is to go fishing. So, uh, I, I offshore fished all summer long. I was able to get a little baseball in. Um, you know, before COVID really took off, I mean, there was precautions, but like my high school and uh, some of my friends' houses, I was able to, they had batting cages I was able to hit a little bit and work out, but man as soon as it covid took off it really shut down everything around here so the only thing i really had to do was go fishing and uh that was fine by me to be honest
1: what uh what kind of stuff are you catching out there down in south alabama
2: well well, offshore we uh you know snapper season came in red snapper season came in in june and then obviously amberjack king mackerel stuff like that we fished a couple uh offshore fishing tournaments just. this past summer, and uh, that was a great time with my dad and some of my best friends, so I really enjoyed that. That killed the time quick, too.
0: That's got to be a nice little uh, situation where obviously you're disappointed that season didn't go the way you wanted, that the draft and then minor league baseball would have been after that didn't go the way you wanted. I mean, it sounds like there are a lot worse fates than having to do some offshore fishing to kill some time. That uh, sounds like a pretty good consolation prize to me. Of course, man. It's, it was it was a very fun summer.
2: Like I said, though, we were uh, – Baseball. I was still able to do some baseball stuff, but due to the COVID, there was so many restrictions. Man, it was it was tough to get working.
1: Well, now you're back, uh, or you were back on campus. You guys were able to to get some fall ball in. Just what was it like being back with your teammates after so long being away? And and what um, you know, what were you working on this fall?
2: This fall was awesome, man. You know, I've never been so ready to get back to school. You know, I was. I told my mom, I was like, you're going to be very surprised when I tell you that I'm so ready to be back at school. And she's like, well, I've never heard you say that before. So I was excited to get back. Um, we had a lot of new guys. I obviously had a huge locker room. Um, a lot of young talent, man. We're, we're going to be very good. I think uh, this fall, the main thing that stood out to me was the arms we have. And uh, we got a lot of arms. Um our guys are, are very mentally tough. That's one thing that we that we preach in our locker room. You got to be mentally tough, and uh, that's that's what's got us to Omaha, both my two years. You know, um, for example, we got swept by Arkansas my sophomore year. After that, I was kind of our punch in the face, and we reacted right after that and never looked back. Went straight to Omaha. So, uh, but we're, we're gonna have a gritty group, man. I'm excited for them.
0: You jumped in the lineup pretty quick when after you arrived on campus and that's not an easy thing to do at a place like Mississippi State with as much talent as y'all have. So what was uh, that like getting to campus and why were you able to make that transition so seamlessly and jump in the lineup and be a part of it the way you were so early on? I uh, I was able to
2: play since day one, man. That's a true blessing. I tell everybody I talk to, that's probably the biggest blessing of my life was being able to start every single game till last year I got hurt, but um, Man, I tell these freshmen every day, I'm, I'm the old guy in the locker room now, so I, got, I try to give them some wisdom because I've lived through it. Is uh, you, you got to show up every single day with a chip on your shoulder to prove to the coaches that you deserve to be on the field. And uh, whether it be, you know, staying late, working hard, or even being vocal on the field. You know, all these young guys are so timid and so, you know, they're not used to playing with a bunch of guys they don't know. Well, you still got to be vocal, you know. We play in front of 15,000 fans. You can barely hear yourself think. You know, so you got to be vocal and talk and communicate, and that makes a big difference. But, man, that's the main thing was just I, I wanted to play so bad. So I just b- basically blocked out every distraction that I would have to keep me from being on the field and just put my head down and went to work. And uh, and it proved and it actually worked out for the best, and I've been playing ever since. I haven't looked back.
1: I would imagine one of the other ways you were able to get on the field so quickly is your versatility. You played some third base first base that that first year you've moved into the outfield now. Uh, just where do you feel most comfortable defensively and um, you know how uh, how do you handle all of the the various intricacies of, of all those positions?
2: I feel most comfortable in the outfield. I do I, I was outfielder in high school. I was also played middle infield in high school so but I feel more comfortable in the outfield. I feel like uh, my speed makes me a better outfielder than I am an infielder. But, um, man, when I first got to Mississippi State, it was, like I said, it was all about I wanted to be in the lineup. I really didn't care where I played. I just wanted to be in the lineup. And uh, I started at third base opening night freshman year. And then next thing you know, I'm dh And then, then a few games later, they throw me in the outfield. And a few games later, they throw me at first base. So I've kind of been all over the place. And uh, I really just... My mindset was I'm going to play wherever they need me, man, wherever I'm going to play to where uh, we're the best defensively and the best offensively with me in the lineup. And um, it worked out for the best, man. I uh like I said, I've been able to play every single game that I can remember to last year. So so I tell these young guys, man, coach is going to find if you're if you want to play, coach will find you a place. You just got to work your tail off. And uh, that's the truth. Because, uh, like I said, I was—I'm five foot ten, playing first base. Well, I worked my way over there. You know, I didn't just wake up and
0: start first base. I earned it. Growing up in Houston, I remember Jeff Bagwell being a five foot ten first baseman. So it, it can happen, kids. That's—that's uh, that's for sure. You—you <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier just the—the—the the, the arms you guys have on the roster. I mean, there's some ridiculous arms on that team that really hadn't even had a chance to to shine yet, and you're taking live abs against them in the fall. Is that? Is that fun? Do you embrace that challenge, or do you spend a lot of time just really hoping that you could face some some arms on that have a different jersey on? Because what what, what you guys are running out there is so good.
2: Man, I love facing our own guys, and they love facing me. It's so we're so competitive. You know, I, I come in the locker room on some days, and we go look at the lineup, and I got freshman pitchers coming up to me saying, "I get to face you today." You know, I, I love that about it, man. I'm like, man, I'll never forget. Freshman year, we're going – we're facing Casey Mize on the mound, and and I told Jake Mangum before I went up to the plate, and the other guy said, oh, man, this is why I came to SEC to play face guys like this. And he looked at me in the eyes and said, he came to the league to face guys like you. And I said, man, that stuck with me, you know. So, it's we're so competitive. We love facing each other. And that's uh, a great thing. It's a good thing we learn each other's strengths and weaknesses and be able to help each other off of it. But do, don't get me wrong. These guys, they learn how to pitch you. It gets pretty tough because they're so talented, man. I tell our young hitters, I'm like, guys, these guys are so good. you got to accept the fact that you're going to fail over half the time. And after that, as soon as you fa- accept the fact that you're going to fail, you'd be surprised how much you succeed. So uh, quit trying to be perfect and just go up there and have good at-bats.
1: You, you mentioned facing Casey Mize. Is he the best that you faced in college or, or who would you uh, who would you throw up there?
2: Casey Myes in college is probably yes, he's probably the best arm I faced. He was really, really good. Um, I'd say Isaiah Campbell from Arkansas last year, or so my sophomore year was very good. He had a sneaky fastball. But man, the best arm I faced in my career, I know this you sound crazy, was a guy from Japan when I went to when I played for USA, my sophomore year, the USA team. We were playing Japan. He threw game one, game three, and game five. And this guy was 90 90. Two ninety-five with like six different pitches, and it was unbelievable, man. I can't tell you how many bats I broke facing that guy. He was the best pitcher I've ever faced.
1: the The remarkable thing about that, when you watch, when when I watch USA, you know, play teams from Japan or, or Korea, is just the way that they pitch is a little differently. So you have to contend with so much more spin than maybe you're used to here. It was is that part of you know what makes him and and those guys so difficult.
2: Oh, for sure. Those guys have unbelievable spin rates on their fastball, and uh, it, it looks like it, it'll the radar gun will say 93, but it's probably playing 96 because it spins so hard. But they have really good off speed, and they can mess around with your rhythm too. You know, there most guys have their pitchers have really slow rhythm. It's a real slow rhythm, then all of a sudden it's 95 right on top of you. So it's it's tough. But that guy can make the ball move any direction
0: and put it wherever he wanted it.
2: So uh, it was it was unbelievable, man. I'll never forget that to the day I die.
0: One of the, the the big developments in the Mississippi State program in recent years has been the development of the, the new dude, the building of the new dude, and that's obviously just an incredible palace for college baseball. How do you put into words what playing in the new dude is like?
2: Man, I got one word for playing in the new dude, and it is just straight breathtaking. Man, it is by far the coolest place I've ever played baseball in in my career, and I've been to every single stadium in the SEC. That nothing compares to playing at Duty Noble, man. These guys, you know, if I was if I was in high school right now getting recruited to play SEC baseball by a bunch of SEC schools, and I went to a baseball game at Duty Noble in front of fourteen thousand, I would commit on site, man. It's that's what you want to play in front of. You don't want to play in front of five hundred people. You want to play in front of fifteen thousand people who love you, who want to see you do great, man. And that's to be honest with you, that's the key to us working hard day in and day out because we we want to please our fans, man. You know. They, got, they they show up for us, so we're gonna show up for them.
1: Now that you've moved to the outfield, have you befriended anyone in the in the left field lounge? Or are there any benefits to being out in the outfield versus the infield <laughs> in terms of food?
2: Oh yeah, it's, it's non-stop questions. You want some sunflower seeds? You want, I got some deer sausage up here. We got some steak. I'm just, oh my like, guys, I, my my back pockets are getting full. I'm not gonna be able to move as fast as I can, you know. But uh, it, it's awesome, man. It's like I told, I told uh, a good friend of mine, it's neat, you know, playing right field in front of the student section, it's like um, it's all business up front and it's a party in the back because those guys actually absolutely have so much fun out there and they provide so much energy to our team. It's like Coach Lim said, man, we're playing a team in Duty Noble and uh, we start getting the crowd into it. The, you call it the dude effect. Yeah, the game's over, man.
0: You, you can't stop it. We love our crowd getting into the game. In addition to baseball, in high school at uh, UMS Wright Prep, you you also played quarterback. Uh, any particular high school football memories uh, stand out to you? What, what do you want to share about Tanner Allen, the quarterback in high school? Oh, that's ironic. I went and saw my high school football
2: coach the other day. We talked for about an hour. A lot about football, a lot about baseball. But, man, one memory I have from high school football was uh, my my uh, junior year with homecoming. We played our rival school team. Thomasville. They actually had a right-handed pitcher who got drafted by the Braves by the name of Chad Bryant. He was supposed to come to Mississippi State to play quarterback for them. Anyways, I think I had probably my my career night. I was like 10 for 11 with almost 300 yards passing and four touchdowns. And uh, we actually talked about that night the other day. That's really good memories, man. I love football. I miss it. I wish I could still go back and play. But these guys are getting too big
0: for me now, so (laughs) I get hurt out there. So we we start to wrap up here. Uh, We we ask one really important question to all of our guests in the show, coaches, players, everybody. Uh, And I'll I'll ask the question and then I'll filibuster for a second so you can can maybe give it a little bit a little bit of thought here. But we ask all of our guests to describe their favorite sandwich. And so some folks take the approach of telling us what they put on a sandwich if they're making it at home. And that's cool. They'll say, like, I'd use this kind of bread and this cheese, this meat, these kind of sauces, condiments, whatever. Or some folks tell us, this is a sandwich I like from this local place. And, and I go every time I go there, I get this sandwich. is my favorite sandwich in town. So we don't really care what direction you take it. But uh, please, Tanner Allen, describe to us your favorite sandwich. All
2: uh, right, My favorite
0: sandwich by far
2: is my grandmother's grilled cheese. Man, it is hard to beat. OK, I, every time I go work at her house, I'll take lunch break and it's always grilled cheese. And then she puts pickles on them. Oh, my gosh. Ooh. It is unbelievable, man. I'm telling you, if you anybody listening, if you want to, if I'm going to let the cat out the hat to up your grilled cheese game, all you got to do is put some pickles on the sandwich. I'm telling you, man, it, 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 it's a game changer.
0: That's not that's not bad. I know some folks who put like onions in grilled cheese and I'm not really about that. But like pickles. Man, I don't like onions. Yeah, I don't. See, I don't either. Like, I don't know why we decided as a society we got to put onions on everything, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not telling. really here for it. Me either. I'm telling you, I'm not a fan of onions. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great answer. Grilled cheese is a classic sandwich. You get the, the buttery bread with like a little bit of crispiness to it. You know, oh, yeah. the cheese is kind of gushing out of it and the pickles, that's, that sounds pretty, I'm going to try that next time I get a grilled cheese together for sure.
2: Oh yeah, it'll, it'll spark it up. I promise.
1: I uh, I'm here for pickles on just about anything, so that's uh, <laughs> I love that tip. Uh, our last question, Tanner. Just uh, what are your goals for the 2021 season, and, and what would be a successful season for for you and for the dogs?
2: Our goals for the 2021 season, obviously, to bring home a national championship. I think our uh, our programs never have one. Our our town has never our athletic programs never had a national championship. Something's never been done here. And I think it's time that our fans get to experience what it's like to have a national championship team on campus. Um we, we work day in and day out for that. Like I said, they're a big part of our program and we want to please them. But it's just, I feel like we've gotten so close my last two or three years here and we've just let them off the hook. We just couldn't finish the deal. But I feel like we got the team this year. If we get there, we can do it. So uh, I feel like, um, like I said, the draft didn't work out for me. I came back for a reason. I feel like the Lord sent me back to Mississippi State for a reason. That is to lead this bunch to a national championship, man. I'm going to do everything I can in my power to uh, to get us there. And uh, I'm excited for it, man. We're going to be very good.
1: Well, we're going to be excited to see you guys play. Uh can't wait to to see what the dogs look like in 2021. Uh, see you go out on the diamond and see all those arms you're talking about. You know, I know it's going to be a fun one for for you guys down there and we're looking forward to watching it, uh, you know, from home and and hopefully down in Starkville as well.
2: Of course, guys, it's going to be a fun year.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Tanner. It was, it was great talking with you.
2: Yes, sir. Thank you guys.
1: Thank you again to Mississippi state outfielder Tanner Allen for joining us here on the baseball America college podcast. Joe, before we, uh, you know, before we went into that interview, I was talking about kind of the idea that, you know, there's a lot of talent. There's a lot of expectations as always in Starkville. And, Tanner Allen's return is a, is a big part of that, you know, in a, a more normal draft year, Tanner Allen would not be back in Starkville. I don't think, uh, frankly, I mean, he could have gone the year before as a draft eligible sophomore, um, did not then we didn't get into that, uh, here on the podcast, but that was an option as well for him. He didn't, uh, he returned. And I think that was with an eye on being a pretty high pick in the 2020 draft. And then of course that opportunity uh kind of never really materialized so now he's back uh to to anchor this offense in a lot of ways you know especially with westberg and Bosky having gone in the draft he he's probably the big bat that you're looking at when you size up mississippi state so a lot on this season for him but it, you know it, it has the chance to be a very special one for for him and uh you know everyone else in the program
0: totally agree. I think it's going to be when people look at Mississippi State coming into the 2021 season. I think it's going to be really easy to look at the 2020 stat sheet and say, "Oh, Foskey and when Westberg gone." You know, I've got questions about the Mississippi State offense, and I think part of that. And look, there. You know, it was a team that hit Justin just is a little bit in air quotes, just 260. Now, as good as Long Beach State was playing against that pitching staff and the way they were pitching, that that'll do that to you. So. um, they also had good games against Oregon State, for example. So some of that is competition level. But I think that the easy thing to do is look at the guys they lost at the top of the lineup, even in a five-round draft, and say, you've got questions about the offense. And, and I think that probably does sell short Tanner Allen, who was limited to just eight games in 2020, you know, hit just 240. So he is kind of easy to overlook, but I think that's also to overlook what he was to this team previously, what he was in 2019 and the potential that he has for 2021, where, you know, he's got a chance to be one of the best hitters in the SEC. I think his ceiling is such that he could be the type of guy that leads this offense. And he, you can be the type of offense Mississippi state wants to be with a guy like Tanner Allen leading the way. He's going to have some, some help. Obviously I think Josh Hatcher is a, you know, an interesting name there, a guy with some, with some power, who I think is the type of guy who could, who could lead an offense and in, in, in burst there as well and get hot. But so I think, he's in a position where I think this is a year where he really could show what type of hitter he is come off of a year where there was a little bit of a tough season for him in 2020 show that not only is he the guy he was in 2019, but he's actually, Oh, by the way, even better than that. And the type of guy you can build an sec offense around, you know, there's also balance here. He talks a lot about, and we asked him about going up against the Mississippi state pitchers in practice and what that experience is like. And, it's an interesting pitching staff, and it's a, it's a pitching staff when you talk about guys like Christian McLeod, Eric Sarantola, Will Bednar, for example. I mean, those are guys that, those are names I know, but I'd be lying if I told you I knew a ton about them or saw a lot of them last year just because we didn't have the opportunity to. We were going to see plenty of them in SEC play, don't get me wrong, but the season was young and, you know, just hadn't had a lot of opportunities to see those guys, and so there's a little bit of mystery around that Mississippi State pitching staff, but but to his point and the point that you've made about this group before is I think it's a it's, it's a group that I think is going to burst onto the scene a little bit in 2021. So I think I mean, it's a team with a lot of balance, but but I think an offense, you know, as you threw this to me, an offense led by Tanner Allen at Mississippi State, I think is going to be in a pretty good place.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, with with the what they have, with, what they've had over the last few years, with Jake Gocho is their hitting coach. I mean, you feel pretty good about that team hitting, even if things look a little bit different without Foskey and Westberg. I mean, things have really changed since I would say the, you know, the, the 19 uh, College World Series team, you know, obviously from that team, they, they immediately lost, you know, the superstar in Mangum, Elijah McNamee leaves from that team. Dustin Skelton leaves from that team. Um, you know, and, and now Fosberg and Westberg, Foskey and Westberg were were two huge pieces from that group as well, and, and they're now gone. You know what you're left with, uh, kind of are, are Rowdy Jordan and Tanner Allen are are the main main guys left from that group, and those two are really good players to to be able to build around. Jordan gives you some of the speed at the top of the lineup, Allen gives you some of the thump in the middle, but now you're going to be looking more for for Hatcher or for Cameron James who showed really well last year as a freshman to take a step forward. Some of their new players coming in, um, you know, like a Scott Dubrul as a, as a grad transfer. Um, they, they have an exciting group of, of newcomers overall. Uh, they're going to kind of have to carry this offense a little more, but you know, again, with, with Allen, with Jordan, you, you and James and Hatcher, you have, you know, a nice core, I would say, uh, you know, to build around. But to your point on the mound, I mean, Christian McLeod went 4-0, 086 last year with 35 strikeouts and 21 innings. And I was going to be excited to see what that looked like in SEC play. I'll be excited to see what that looks like in SEC play this year. He he has a chance to really, you know, make a name for himself and and have a, a fantastic season this year. Ser- Eric Sarantola has premium stuff the control is going to be the issue if he's throwing strikes that's uh you know that's big time ability has a huge arm Spencer Price and Riley Self who it feels like have been there for 10 years now and I, I hate it when people say that usually but in those in their case it it really does feel like they've been there forever and in some respects they have They, they give the bullpen a lot of experience and there's a, there's a lot of, of young pitchers there that have big time arms and, you know, it's going to be a deep staff. A lot of teams in the SEC can say that for sure. But I, I think when you know, there are going to be teams that have, that there are teams in the SEC that are a little more famous on the mound, you know, think about Florida, LSU, Vanderbilt, you know, even Ole Miss returning all three of its starters you know, th- those teams have the, the famous faces on the mound and they're famous for a reason. They're really good. But Sarantola, you know, has the stuff, you know, again, that's a question of control. McLeod has, it would appear a lot of the ingredients to be a premium sec starter. So, you know, if, if those guys just kind of do what they're capable of doing and just do it on a, a you know, a bigger platform, that, that they'll be entitled to this year. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that they're going to be so far behind some of these other pitching staffs. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying this is Florida. It doesn't have Florida's experience. I don't think it has its depth, but, you know, I, I, I do think it can be a really strong pitching staff in the SEC.
0: Agreed. And I think they're a team that You and I had this conversation offline where there are a lot of teams, and the example you used was Florida, and it's a good one. I think it applies to Mississippi State, maybe in a little different way, where there's just going to be so many arms here that the coaching staff's not fully going to know what to do with them. And I think the way some of that's going to be remedied, especially if we live in a world where we go to four-game weekends or, or something like that, some version of that where you're cramming extra games in the weekends, whether it's every weekend or, or whatever, that there's going to be just a lot of mixing and matching on the mound. And you you got bullpen games by design because, A, you want to get the guys work, and, B, that's just your your best chance to win. And I think Mississippi State maybe fits that bill when you talk about the sheer volume of guys when you combine the, the younger guys who are a little bit unproven but have really good stuff and some of the older guys, like you mentioned, Self and, and Price, for example, who have been there a long time and have, have done it which is not to say, which is not to uh, underestimate their stuff. I am just kind of drawing a comparison between those two buckets of, of pitchers. They've also got some guys that can give you a little different looks. I mean, I think about a guy like shout out to seventh year senior Carlisle Kessler, who originally started out at Southeastern Louisiana. And by the time he's done, we'll have basically a fully formed career at Mississippi state as well. I mean, you know, he's obviously has a little bit of a He's more of kind of the, uh, you know, get you out with guile and change slots on you and and mix pitches. And so they've got a little bit of power and a little bit of finesse. And I think that's the type of staff where, where you're going to see a lot of the, you know, seven pitchers, not because the game is 14 to 12, but because they want to give the opposing team seven different looks. And so that's something I think uh, we need to be prepared for. I think in general, uh, I think in the SEC, protect, perhaps especially because those SEC staffs are going to be absolutely loaded. And if you talk to not every coach, but many of the coaches that I've talked to in recent weeks, as we're kind of doing these fall question series on the website, and then just generally where they will tell you where they have numbers is typically on the mound. Again, that's not true necessarily across the board, but in the conversations I've had, it's when we talk about the numbers on the roster, they say, well, yeah, where we've. It's actually not as hard to manage as you might think, because where our numbers are is on the mound. And as long as we can just be creative about getting those guys innings, we think we're going to be OK. The numbers are not really typically on the position player side. And so when you've got that many pitchers that you're trying to get work, I mean, that that's just what we're going to see. And I think this team in particular, I think, is, is a good candidate for that, not just because of the numbers, but also because they, they, they can give you a lot of different looks.
1: Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. Uh, and Mississippi State and and Scott Foxhall, their pitching coach, are, are going to have a lot of things uh, that they can work with there. I I wanted to mention one thing that the Tanner said in the the interview that stood out to me, and that was when he was talking about uh, Casey facing Casey Mize, and um, you know him remarking to to Jake Mangum that you know hitting against Mize is is what he was looking for when he when he went to Mississippi state, when he went to the sec and then Jake saying, well, pitching to guys like you is why Casey is in this league. And I just thought that was, first of all, like, I can totally see Jake Mangum saying that, like, that, that is a very perceptive comment that that someone like Jake would make, but it is true. Like so often we think about it from, you know, kind of the hidden perspective, like, Oh, you get to face rocker and you get to face, you know, Jaden Hill and you get to face Tommy Mace and, and Casey Mize and, and all the rest of these guys. But like, yeah, they're also looking at it like, oh, I get to face Tanner Allen and, and I get to face, you know, Justin Foscue and, and I get to face all, all these hitters as well. And, and so I, I, it was a, it was an interesting way to, to flip something that, that we hear a lot, uh, but, but is, is true from, from both sides of the equation, uh, especially within that conference, but really throughout college baseball.
0: Yeah. If, uh, just another reason to be kind of it. Cause here's the thing about Jake Mangum saying that to, to Tanner Allen too, is like, you know, perhaps Jake Mangum has thought that before, like maybe that's something he said to himself, right. When you're a younger player and you're facing off yeah, of, you know, against whoever the the Casey Mize of 2015 would have been or 16 would have been. And, you know, maybe that's something he said to himself. And so he's thought about that, but, you know, I'd like to think I may, you know, you and I make a living putting words on paper, right? And thinking about words and trying to find the best way to say things for impact and for clarity and for all that kind of thing, all those kind of things. And I just don't know that I could ever come up with saying something so precise and so on point and so impactful as what he came up with in that moment to say that exactly. Um, and that's, you know, that's good leadership. I'm not saying Jake Mangum is the only guy on earth who could have done, who could have done that. I'm sure there are other players in the country who similar leadership skills have bought that and what have you, but, uh, man, talk about something that I could never really exactly pull off, um, saying in the moment and, and Jake Mangum just, uh, just, just did so.
1: All right. So thank you to Tanner for, uh, for joining us here and, and letting some insight into, into the Bulldogs and what they can expect in 2021. We're excited. Uh, To see what they've got rivalries. We were talking about Mississippi State here, and in our top 25 rivalries, uh, Mississippi State makes a few appearances, including at number one against Ole Miss. Uh, we, we also threw in their, their rivalry against uh, uh, LSU, which, uh, you know, I know some, I, I see the Mississippi State fans on Twitter saying uh, to us that, well, LSU is our biggest rival right now. Like, okay like i i get that you're 14 and 2 or something like that over the last four years uh against ole miss you know jake mangum basically never lost to ole miss i get it uh but that that's that's the best rivalry in college baseball right now like that one you know the lse one is uh is a great game on on the diamond right now and it, it is an important rivalry but you know when we're when we're looking at it, you know, from a you know holistic view, not just looking at what is the most compelling series, you know, to me, it's you know the in-state component, how much those fan bases really don't like each other, how much you know the teams want to win that, and and I, you know, I, I love the the Ole Miss Mississippi State rivalry and and what it means and and the crowds and you know the fact that it's in state and that they play four times a year, you know, the the midweek. Game in Jackson, the Governor's Cup, in addition to the, uh, you know, the SEC weekend series. It's a it's a fantastic rivalry with with a lot on the line, seemingly every year in the SEC West.
0: Yeah, I I think um, part of that I would say with Mississippi State, I have to wonder is if just you know LSU being holding the place they do in, in college baseball history, it's a little bit of an aspirational thing where Mississippi State is certainly in that conversation, but obviously don't have quite the track record of LSU in terms of national titles, things like that. And so part of that has to be just kind of an aspirational thing. I think some of it though is I've never really, so there has been Mississippi state having the upper hand over Ole Miss just generally. However, I've never really been a big fan of the idea. There seems to be this thought out there that, that in order for a rivalry to be a rivalry, it has to be very competitive. And I agree generally speaking, right? So I went to San Houston state and while a lot of, People at Sam Houston State, when they play a and or Texas or whomever in baseball, because they don't really play in, in football and even basketball, but in baseball or the other smaller sports, um, you know, they're really excited to beat those teams. Um, I actually remember when I was at Sam Houston State, the basketball team beat the Bob Knight coach Texas Tech. And that was a huge deal on campus, right, even though in the grand scheme of things, not a really important win. But we would never call, you know, at San the State, would never call those schools their rival. So, like, in that regard, I do agree it has to be kind of competitive by and large. But sometimes rivalries just get lopsided, like where one team is on like a really long run or, you know, historically, one team always has the upper hand. I mean, the Red Sox and Yankees for a long time, the Yankees were winning a whole lot of titles. And the Red Sox just weren't. Now, regular season was competitive, but um, so I've never really necessarily, this is a tangent and an aside, but. I've never necessarily bought the idea that, that a rivalry has to be super competitive in wins and losses to be a rivalry. I think it just needs animosity. I think it needs kind of something that it's rooted in, whether it's the geographic proximity, whether it's a particularly close set of games or consequential set of games in its history that kind of made it. So recruiting rivalries, things like that. There, I think those things are, are more important than kind of the wins and losses understanding of course, that there's, there are degrees of this again, we, but when you're talking about at the, at the highest levels, I, I just don't know. I think the wins and losses are, are part of it. But I've always just thought of people saying that it has to be competitive to be a rivalry was a way that the team with the upper hand could look down on their rival and try to contend that it wasn't actually a rivalry when they know better.
1: Yes, 100% that. You know, when I, the, the most egregious example of this I can think of is, I think it was Mike Hart, former Michigan running back. Said now, fifteen-ish, maybe a little bit longer than that ago. Years, years ago, said about the Ohio State rivalry, which Michigan had the upper hand in at the time. It was taking a backseat to their rivalry against Michigan State because you know they were more the the games against Michigan State. You know, had been more back and forth lately. Well, fast forward now the next 15, 16, 17 however many years ago Mike Hart said that uh, Michigan has won one game against Ohio State. So, if you're going to say things like that, A, you better be ready to back it up. But B, like, you know, understand that just cuz you're on the flip you're just cuz you're on one side of it now doesn't mean that you won't be on the flip side of it later, especially when it's something like two schools in the same state in the same conference. Um, you know, so not to harp on those Mississippi state fans who are feeling their oats right now because of the way things have transpired over the last five years. Like I do understand that, but uh, you know, again, from a national global college baseball perspective uh, we're, we're going with Ole miss Mississippi state as, as the, the best rivalry in college baseball. We then had uh Fullerton and long beach state, which I love because in that series or in, in that rivalry, one weekend series is not enough. They play their, you know, their their weekend series for the Big West comp at the end of the year every year, uh, but they. All- play a non-conference. They're, they look at it and say, you know, we've got to play six times a year. Um, there's no other rivalry like that in the country. Uh, and you know, so went with that ahead of Clemson and South Carolina, which often gets talked about as one of the best in the country, deservedly so. Uh, it has a, a unique setup you know, with the, or, or it kind of used to be unique. Other places, uh, other rivalries have been moving to a a similar setup where they you know they play a home game in columbia they play a neutral site game and then they finish the series at clemson i may have that backwards uh but the point is it moves across three different venues across three different days very engaged fan bases south carolina loves its college baseball not surprised to see for me those are like the, the top three. And then I would say the the Florida threesome of Florida, Florida State, and Miami right there with, with those other three. Th- those that, that grouping, I would say is the the, the top end for me. Uh, but I mean, you've got Bedlam, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, you've, you've got, you know like I said, Mississippi State, LSU, you've got UNC, North Carolina State. There's a lot of really good rivalries there in the top 10. Uh, but there is something about that top 4 for me that's kind of separating from the rest of the pack.
0: I would agree. I think you and I kind of when we first started putting this together that was the the point on which we agreed most was kind of that those three had elevated beyond a level of the others. The Florida one just tends to kind of shape shift where sometimes the the Miami and Florida rivalry of that piece is a little hotter than others and or the Florida Florida state uh, and because Florida has been so good, it's probably been a while since the Florida State Miami part of that rivalry was the hottest. But th- that kind of does shape shift, which I think kind of makes it fun because it, it it takes on different different meanings. Where you now you've got Miami and Florida State are kind of in the in, in conference, obviously, and, and Florida's in a different conference altogether. So that lends itself to Florida State and Miami kind of settling things.
1: Perhaps well, I, I also more... like the fact that in that trio you have different setups. So you have Florida State and Miami playing an ACC conference series. You have Florida and Florida State playing this midweek series over the course of three weeks, moving Tallahassee, Gainesville, and in Jacksonville. And then you have, you know, the, the annual second weekend of the year, third weekend of the year, second weekend of the year, uh, Miami playing a, a normal weekend series against Florida. So I like that it has like these three different fields. It has this, early season non-conference big time series it has this midweek you know series which makes it fun multiple weeks out of the year and then you, you also have you know the, this pretty consequential ACC series all, all in the mix there
0: yeah agreed just a, a fun one overall it's, it's probably one of the I, I have a lot of fun kind of following that one year to year because there are layers to it as as kind of a uh a uh I forget what they call it in professional wrestling, a triangle match when it's three people. I forget what they what they call it there, but but yes, a triple threat match. There it is. A triple threat match in the Sunshine State. Um, there were as I was putting helping put this together, I thought about some of these rivalries that that might pop kind of in the next, you know, 5 to 10 years if we were to do this down the road, like will some of these rivalries, so many of these rivalries, I guess I should start here. Some of these rivalries are so hard-coded, it's hard to see things changing in, in terms of its place in the hierarchy. There are some though, I think that have some mobility. A couple that I thought about were one is Georgia and Georgia tech. Part of the reason uh, is that that they are now playing, or at least hope to play this as a weekend series, as opposed to, and they did so in 2020, but prior to that, they were doing it as a series of midweek games. So I think that helps. Uh, Secondarily, I think uh, we've seen an improvement in Georgia tech, at least on the recruiting side, we're still kind of waiting for it to really express itself in teams that you know, win regionals, challenge to get to Omaha, all that kind of stuff. So I think that rivalry could be a little bit higher on this list if we were to do it again at some point in the, um, you know, in the future. Uh, I also think there's Louisville and Kentucky is interesting to me. Uh, They play, but it's midweek, obviously. And the history of this rivalry is obviously, this rivalry is much more known for basketball. And then to a lesser degree, football. But I think there's a chance with baseball with obviously Louisville is really cooking now. Um, But I think we saw like a preview of it in that super regional a couple of years ago where, I mean, that thing was just nuts in Louisville. And so if Kentucky can get to a point of being a little more consistent, we know Kentucky's entire history as a baseball program has been, has been fairly up and down. But if the ups are a little more up and they're a little more competitive, I think that's one that could pop a little more because there is a lot of animosity between those two fan bases I think they're kind of looking for another outlet because they play in football, they play in basketball. I think if both teams in baseball continue to be good, I think those fan bases would really love that opportunity for it to be another chance to kind of, to prove their, their supremacy in the sport. So I think that one has a lot of upside. Right now we've got it at 23. I think that could be a little bit higher if those programs, you know, continue to play at a high level and continue to play each other.
1: I'm going to go in a, a slightly different direction there with the Louisville rivalry, Louisville and Vanderbilt um you know play a midweek just like the one you're talking about it's it's one game a year though um battle of the barrel one of the few in college baseball there is a trip but uh, the battle of the barrel one of the few rivalry games and so it's got that going got that going for it uh and it also maybe got Heated up a notch or two at the College World Series in 2019. Uh, things got spicy between Louisville and Vanderbilt in in an elimination game for Louisville, which sent Vanderbilt to the to the finals. You know that's the game when Luke Smith was yelling. Um, you know coming off the mound in the eighth, seventh, whatever name that was, uh, and then Vanderbilt flips it on him, comes back, wins the game. I wish they could have played in 20 that would have helped, but you know, there's still a lot of players on both those teams, including Luke Smith uh, who were at that game in 2019. Neither one of those programs looks like it's going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, So I I like, I like the idea of that one over the next few years, maybe gaining uh, a little more prominence. I would love it if they played more often, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it really fits with either team's scheduling philosophy to turn that into a weekend series, but if they did, it would be fantastic.
0: Agreed. There are a couple on here that I think people may, I don't want to say they'd be surprised, but just are a little bit more off the, off the radar. Uh, one is, is near and dear to my heart as a Houstonian, that's Rice and Houston. So in, in the blurb, I talk about. Do they have a that-
1: trophy for the silver Club?
0: You know, I don't know if they have an actual physical trophy. You'd think I'd I'd know that, but I, I don't know that they actually pass around a a silver glove. Um, I'm not really sure. I guess I suppose we can we can look that up a little bit, but um, but that is an interesting one because it it um, it came it came of age at you know in the in the in the early two thousands when that that rivalry was was hottest. Those those two teams were both kind of challenging to to get to Omaha. Houston never got there. Rice, of course, did on a number of occasions, but. That one's interesting not because of just the proximity those campuses are not that far apart but they're very different universities um you know it's it's you know a small private school in rice um and then you've got a huge public school in houston that has spent the better part of the last couple of decades trying to fight the reputation that it's a commuter school uh located off the interstate and you know houston has done a good job in that with their kind of the academic side and the athletic side but there's always kind of been that tension there, I think, because it's just two very different institutions on top of being for a long time, two very good baseball programs, UCF and USF is, is kind of similar, but I think it's because I think what those two programs are trying to do is so similar. They're in the same conference. They're both always going to be in the shadow of those Florida, Florida state, Miami teams. We talked about, they're kind of fighting to try to just get little moments in the sun out of those shadows. And I think those two uh, certainly those two fan bases don't care for each other, but I think it's because it's, it's a little bit like the Spider-Man meme where there's the two Spider-Men pointing at each other. And I'm sure someone who knows more about that dynamic could maybe tell me if I'm right or wrong on that. But my perception has always been that those are two similar schools and that they're fairly new schools. They're fairly new athletic departments. They both are, you know, moved up to Division One, you know, as, as they grew from the, the lower levels of, of college athletics. And I think they're both looked at as schools with potential because of their locations and because of um, you know, the resources they've put into being good at athletics. And it kind of feels like a little bit of a situation where it feels like one or the other will eventually come out on top and we still don't know who that is. Um, so I, I think that one's interesting because it's just two schools in a similar place trying to do similar things. And it feels like there might not be necessarily room for both of them.
1: The, uh, the good old war on I-4 there. Um... That's actually, yeah, so just, I'm
0: I, sure this joke has been made, but that's actually just what like daily traffic on I4 is actually like <laughs> the <war> on I4. <laughs> uh, I,
1: I am sure you're not the first to make it, but that doesn't make it any less true. There is there is something to be said for that. Uh, so we had fun putting that together. I'd encourage you to check it out over at the website if you have not done so already. And you can let us know uh, what we got wrong because uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure some people have some opinions about that uh okay joe i we i mentioned there was some some summer ball news that that we wanted to get to touch on a little bit i wrote kind of an update to where summer ball stands now following an unprecedented year and with the creation of these two new leagues that have mlb backing that's the appalachian league which uh, formerly was a, a rookie ball league and now is you know completely transferred to being a college summerwood bat league and the MLB draft league which was created in the footprint of the old new york penn league which has been disbanded had been a short season league. Uh, both of those things are happening as a result of the larger minor league baseball reorganization which jJ cooper has covered so well for us and you can catch up on all of that coverage at baseballamerica.com but as it relates to to college baseball th- those two leagues being created is is kind of the the main main crux of it there and you know, so the appy league is now intended for rising freshmen and sophomores with maybe an emphasis more on the rising sophomores than on the rising freshmen it has, you know, it's a it's a joint venture between Major League Baseball and USA baseball. And because of that USA baseball tie-in, it's going to be tied into the collegiate national team. They haven't really made any sort of announcement or decision about quite what that looks like uh, in, in its final details. Uh, I would expect something on that in the new year. And That tie-in is going to be very beneficial for it in terms of attracting those players. Uh, Anything that they can do, you know, to get on the collegiate national team's radar any more than they already are, um, it's going to be a significant piece of it. Uh, That doesn't mean the league's not without challenges. It's a startup league. They're trying to play 54 games with 10 teams uh, their season stretches longer than the Cape Cod League season. Uh, they have probably a reduced player pool by saying that they want to emphasize the, the rising freshmen and sophomores. Uh, finding pitchers in that category is going to prove not easy, I would, I would guess, because finding pitching is probably the hardest thing about summer ball right now. Uh, so that, that's that league. The MLB Draft League is designed for any draft eligible player, but an emphasis on college juniors and seniors. And they're, you know, play basically as a showcase to scouts. Uh, They have six teams leading up to the draft, which will now be held in July in conjunction with major league baseball's all-star weekend. So that gives those players a pretty healthy dose of time to be playing in a league that's going to be run by Prep Baseball Report, uh, um, and and just get seen by more scouts. I, when I was talking with with Carrick Jackson, who was hired away from Southern to be the president of uh, of the league, you know, his he was talking a lot about players who get underscouted for a variety of reasons. Maybe they got hurt. Uh, maybe they're in a, a part of the country that generally gets underscouted. Typically, those are. You know, either more remote places or or colder places where you have less of a chance to get your cross checker in to see a player. Well, now you have more of a chance to get to get a cross checker in because you know they can go in and see them in in this league, or, or maybe they're you know it for their college team they're playing third base because they have a really good shortstop that they're playing behind, but they think they can play shortstop, and this league is going to give them an opportunity to prove that yes, they can play shortstop. So. You know, a, a kind of diverse group of players that that this league can draw from. That's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, you know, how, how heavily scouted it, it is and, you know, what opportunities arise from there. What players are going to be comfortable going to play there leading up to the draft, knowing that by playing there, there are some risks. It's not just reward. There's the risk that you go and you get hurt. Or that you you know go and you play and you don't play as well as you expected to. And then that's the last thing on everyone's minds going into the draft. So I, I'll be interested to see who, who goes, who's willing to go play in that league. But two interesting leagues that MLB has positioned purposefully on either side of the Cape Cod League, which they are to this point not trying to encroach on, trying to keep as the pinnacle of summer ball. Uh, you know, for those players, for the the premier players, especially going into their their junior season in college, um, the Cape right now is still drawing the top rising sophomores in the country as well. So I don't know how that is going to work with the Appalachian League. That's just going to be something that we're going to have to see play out over the next couple of years. And an important thing to remember before you know I, I throw this to Joe and we we get into maybe a little more conversation is that. It is awfully late in this in the year to be trying to launch a summer league. So what these leagues look like in 2021 is not what they will look like in 2022 and beyond in, in large part because you know these are leagues that don't yet have coaching staffs, whereas pretty much every other summer league has been spending September, October, November you know filling out their rosters. And you know so these leagues just launched behind the eight ball because of the calendar period. And this first year is—it's going to look very startup-y, I, I think that uh, you know that there's going to be a lot of things that they have to work out between you know this 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 first season and then the second season, where where I think they might find their legs and find um, you know a little more of their target demo, especially for the Appalachian League. All right, so Joe, I, I threw out a lot of things there take it where you want to take it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I, so, I mean, I'm a little more of a summer ball novice than you. So I, I have a few like scattered little thoughts here and I figured maybe you could just kind of react to them at, at once I, once I get it all out here and, and tell me, you know, which parts are more interesting to you, if I might be onto something in some cases, or if, if, if I've just kind of made stuff up here. So I think the first thing, and I think we could agree on this completely. I have very little doubt about that is the shifting is not, is not done in summer ball because We've got these new leagues launching. The other leagues, I think, are waiting to see how that really affects the player pool. And to your point, we're not really necessarily going to know that right out of the gate. That's going to take a number of years to settle. But it's just hard to imagine five to seven years down the road for any number of reasons that summer ball looks like it does now. I think it's a given that the shifting is only going to continue in that regard. The most interesting part to me, I think, uh, just as a college baseball fan, is the idea of players going to play some summer ball before the draft because in the past what we've had is more commonly i should say is is the occasional player who didn't get drafted or you know maybe just wasn't getting the attention he wanted after you know after the draft passed by and then he goes to summer ball he ends up signing after he shows something in summer ball but now the opportunity to do that before the draft i think is pretty interesting to me. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that shift and seeing how that ends up playing out. I, I do wonder if some of this stuff, I think there's a little bit of worry. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's more intrigue just about how splintered summer ball will become. And maybe, I think maybe more so some summer leagues dying, which that just kind of happens. There's like a natural life cycle to these things, but the established leagues, I think will be okay. But maybe some of these leagues and these teams Lesson in prominence, and, and maybe that's ends up being true to some degree. But I also think that one thing that gets underplayed in summer ball is is yes, I think the Cape and, and Team USA are well established, and maybe these leagues by MLB will have a level of coaching or a level of organization to them that they become so attractive that it it changes this um this paradigm a little bit. But I think one thing that gets underplayed when it comes to thinking about summer ball is the fact that their college coaches tend to send players to places where they trust the coaches as much as the league in a lot of cases. Now they're going to give them the chance to go play at USA or play at Cape Cod. But in terms of player placement, there's a reason why you'll look at rosters and you'll see six guys from one team on that roster. And I use the example this summer of, you know, the Santa Barbara Foresters weren't really guaranteed any sort of schedule at all, but when the Cape canceled and there was no USA, a bunch of coaches sent players to go play for Bill Pintard and the Santa Barbara Foresters because of the relationship and because of the history there. And so I think to some degree now, does that mean they send players to a super low level league because they're their friends with a guy? No, not necessarily. But I think in some of these leagues that you might think is being a little marginalized because of these new leagues forming, I think maybe that will assuage some of these fears. Now that, that isn't true necessarily across the board, but I do think there are pockets of examples of that where, You know, there are some coaches who are really tied to the Futures League, for example, and they really want to send players there. And I gave the example of of Bill Pintard, and I think there are examples of this all over the country. So I think I will be interested to see how that kind of continues. And I think it's, it's one thing people can hold on to to say that, no, Summer Ball is not just going to become USA Cape and then leagues run by MLB. I think it's going to be more nuanced than that, but it is going to be different. And the other thing is that I think Summer Ball is kind of unkillable because anybody who's tried to pay attention to summer ball from June until whenever it ends knows that these teams go through iterations. And I saw firsthand in the coastal plain league this summer, that the rosters on day one were very different than the rosters on the last day of the season. And the last day of the season, you're kind of scrambling, you're finding local players, you're finding lower level players. That's kind of always been the case in summer ball. And I think that will just kind of, kind of continue there. Whatever number of college baseball players you think there are available to go play in these summer leagues. You probably need to double that number because they will always find players. Now the quality might be lesser than it was before, but you know these leagues exist because the teams exist, um, and as long as there are players out there to play on these teams, I think these teams will exist. So um, perhaps the the death of summer ball on the fringes is maybe a little bit exaggerated.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that. That's a big important point that the creation of the Appalachian League in particular, the MLB Draft League is a little different. Those players, for the most part, have not been playing summer ball, I think is the demographic they're shooting for. Certainly graduated seniors have by and large not been playing college summer ball. Most leagues don't allow that. Um, And then most players who anticipate being drafted have not played summer ball previously because you would have been playing for like a week, maybe two weeks, depending on when your season ended and what league you were looking at joining. Uh, and the risk-reward there is pretty pretty significantly weighted toward the risk side. Um, so if you thought you were, let's just say, a top 20-round draft pick, you were probably already sitting the summer out. Uh, so the MLB draft league I don't think is going to improve infringe on on most leagues here. But the happy League is certainly going to take away uh, you know, some of those younger players now. Are they taking them from the Cape? Are they taking them from the Northwoods League? Are they taking them from the Coastal Plain or the South Florida Collegiate or you know the California Collegiate, West Coast League, Alaska League? You know, the answer is probably yes to all of that. Um But that doesn't mean that the largest base of the players for any of those leagues is going away and there will be players to be found in their stead. I, I, in some places you might see a slight decrease in the quality of play, or at least in the quality of prospect in the league. I think that's a, a wholly possible situation. Uh, but for the, by and large, you know, these leagues are, you know, they're going to keep rolling. People want to watch baseball. I don't know, like certainly part of the attraction on the Cape is that, you know, ignore the scouts who are going there because that's where the best players are. But just from a, a fan perspective, some of the attraction there is that like, these are the best players and everyone's been told these are the best players. Like that, that's very much part of the, the marketing of the league, but you know, it's also just a fun thing to do that happens to be free. A lot of these leagues aren't free, but like the Savannah bananas, you know, the, the show you see them put on there. Yes. There's a baseball game going on and yes, they often have very good players, but also it's just a fun event. And, you know, so that that's, if that's how your summer ball is set up, like, well, quality of play matters, but you know, if you suddenly lose 10 of the better players in your league and replace them with 10, slightly worse players or maybe even 10 equivalent baseball players in air quotes, but like who throw five to 10 miles an hour less hard, like are, is the average fan going to notice? And I would say probably not. Um, but the the other thing here is that it's a startup league and they're going to have good coaches. They're tied into USA baseball. They're tied into MLB. Um, you know, so they're going to have all of that going for them. But you also are talking about a league that, frankly, is not in the most um, appealing part of the country to spend your summer. I guess I would say, you know, we're talking about a league that has teams, you know, in the in the Appalachian, you know, area of North Carolina, Virginia, Eastern Tennessee, like that. That's mostly where this league is. And you know, so Joe mentioned the Santa Barbara Foresters. Bill Pintar, who often have you know premium young talent, uh, Isaiah Campbell played there, uh, Christian Franklin played there. You know, just to think of a couple of Arkansas guys. Uh, they, you know, have Santa Barbara. <laughs> there, you know, if you listen to our podcast with uh, with Andrew Chekets on, you you heard some of the virtues of Santa Barbara. Like it's a it's just a really nice place that's on the beach. You know, Burlington, North Carolina is not on the beach. And you know, so some of this is going to be, there's going to be a certain kind of player that wants to just go play in that league, no matter what. And then there are gonna be other players that wanna stay closer to home. You know, that that that's just gonna be something that maybe they're prioritizing, uh, especially true for the, the rising freshmen. And then the other thing about the rising freshman bit of this all is that not every coach in the country wants the rising freshman to go out and play summer ball? A lot of them want them to come to campus, take classes, and get acclimated, get weightlifting, you know, in their facilities, uh, you know, for those first few months before the rest of the team shows up. So, I don't. It's going to be very interesting, especially in the first couple of years. Once they get their feet under them, once they figure out some of these, some some of the 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 intricacies of it, once they get some word of mouth that this league is really cool, you know, I, I think that they're going to have more success. But early on, I will be interested to see how many players are willing to, to jump at this. Um, and some of that's going to have to do with the the coaching staffs they, they put together and the tie-ins to, to USA and, and, and to the collegiate national team
0: first off i've often heard burlington north carolina referred to as the santa barbara of north carolina so (laughs) let's get that very very clear
1: no Uh, disrespect to burlington or elizabethton or any of the other happy league cities but like we're talking about two very different situations i feel like in a lot of these cases continue (laughs)
0: yes no it's uh different yeah agreed um yeah, just it'll be an. I mean, the 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 word to use is is interesting and intriguing because it it it, it is going to be shifting sands in summer ball for a number of years, and and it, you and I, you know, can't exactly predict what it's going to end up looking like because so much of it just depends on how much traction these things get and how long it takes and and so on and so forth. But you bring up a good point about, you know, I I think of it this way when it, when we talk about some of the summer leagues, kind of a rung below the top tier ones, is that those leagues aren't competing with the Cape Cod league. Those leagues are competing with families going to the movies. Um, it's just, it's baseball. And so people show up to watch the baseball and to your point, whether the guys are throwing, you know, 95 or 85 is really kind of inconsequential. And if you've got some local guys, great. Somebody they can kind of root for because it's the local school, what have you, that's great too. But nobody's going out there, bemoaning that it's not the Cape Cod league. It's, you know, families looking to have a, a fun Friday night out and, a lot of these leagues provide that. And that's what, that's what they're looking. They're looking to give players a development opportunity. Sure. But these leagues are also just looking to give some folks in a lot of times, smaller communities, frankly, something to do on the weekends. And so as long as that is true and as long as that is the case, summer ball will continue to thrive in a lot of places where prospects really aren't going. And I think that's great for college baseball, by the way, and great for baseball in general. And also while also at the same time, I'm excited to see what some of these new leagues bring and the the kind of complexity it delivers to the draft process and summer ball and all of that stuff.
1: Absolutely. And you can be sure that we're going to be tracking all of that, uh, especially this summer as these leagues uh, actually get underway. And uh, you know, we'll have more to say about it here on the podcast and on the website uh, and, and all the rest of that. So, That's something we're following. And, you know, again, if you want to dive deep into, you know, where summer ball stands as we head towards 2021, you can check out my story from last week over at baseballamerica.com. That'll do it for us today on this edition of the baseball America college podcast. Uh, You can follow Joe and me on Twitter for more content. Uh, I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy, B.A. There's a lot going on on the website, in addition to my summer ball story and uh, this week's top 25, uh, especially if you're into the pro side as well, the top 10s for every team in Major League Baseball, uh, their top 10 prospects are rolling out, we're into the central uh, divisions now the west divisions coming soon and the east divisions all online already for you to peruse and while you're there you can pre-order your copy of the baseball america handbook which has the full top 30s and everything else you've come to know and love about the handbook uh so you can check that out at baseballamerica.com. we will be back here with another edition of the podcast next week in the meantime we would greatly appreciate it if you can subscribe if you haven't and remember you can do so at any of your favorite podcasting apps apple podcast stitcher spotify wherever you get your podcast you can find the baseball america podcast so thank you again to tanner allen for joining us today thank you all to listen for listening thank you to rap soto for presenting the podcast. And remember, you can check out the National Player Database at repsodocom slash national database. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next week on the Baseball America College podcast.
2: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.